Hi, my name's Noreen Jamil, and this is... Emily Kate Stevens. Both of us have been diagnosed with long COVID. And we've created this podcast dedicated to the condition. Welcome to the Long COVID Sessions. So, Noreen, how was your week? How are you, love? Uh, I'm feeling a little better today. Um, but I've had an awful few days where I've had really bad chest pain. Really deep in the middle of my back. And then just above my heart on the right side. Horrible ache and the palpitations of back. And it was just been awful. So being... <laughs> Being the doctor that I've, I've newly qualified to be, not really. <laughs> I uh, I suddenly thought it might be pericarditis, which could have been brought on by the recent COVID. So I took my culture scene like a good girl. Yeah. And it seems to have settled a bit. I don't have that horrible ache in the middle of my back anymore. Good. So how, how many days have you been doing the um, culture scene? Uh, three days. And I was starting to feel a difference yesterday. So it does... I think it does do some good. I was trying the evabradine, but the evabradine didn't really do anything for the pain. So it could have just been inflammation. And what about for the sort of erratic heartbeat? Is 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 there anything that calms that? The evabradine I took because I was really quite tacky because I was quite unwell. So then I my intolerance for any kind of activity goes up. And that's good at bringing your heart rate down but it doesn't really sort out the palpitations. Mm. And I haven't had any mal- any medication that sorted out the palpitations apart from my half a tablet of diazepam, which does tend to help. But I thought I honestly, Emily, I thought I got rid of those palpitations. They, for me, are my worst, worst symptom. And they were gone for months and months. And I just was happy to live with the techie. Mm. But they came back. Yeah, and what is what are we now? We're uh, sort of seven weeks past Omicron for you? Yeah, seven weeks, yeah. Uh, that's about right. And that's the, about the time I started to feel unwell the first time. And interestingly, I've um, got more and more friends, people just contacting me saying that they have got this real fatigue from Omicron that they haven't been able to shake or they've got this real... You know, all of our various issues, completely at random, different friends just saying to me, there's something lingered from Omicron. And these are people who didn't have particularly, particularly intense version of the virus. So I am not hopeful of what happens now. No, today's meant to be the day that we are free from all mitigations, well, including, including if you have COVID, you don't have to isolate, which seems... Which is- Utterly bonkers. It's just insane, isn't it? Tell me, how was your week, love? It's not been great. I had a, you know, a bit of a, a dip, the migraines, and then I had a big crash and I couldn't get out of bed. And now I'm left with weird stuff that I thought that I had got rid of. So I've got the constriction in my throat, this kind of sticky sticky lungs feeling it's it's not that I'm breathless it feels like my lungs are small and I feel like I can't get in the same amount of air that I 
used to be able to. I feel like that too. I get that. And I particularly notice it at night because obviously that's the time that you're lying there and my pulsatile tinnitus is going crazy. And I've got these bulging pulses all over my body that I find really quite disconcerting. And I think we've spoken before, I think it's palpitations. It feels like this kind of butterflies fighting to get out of my out of my chest. And it's just not very pleasant. Yeah. And I don't know if we'll ever get used to it. Maybe we will. The thing is that at the moment, the figures, we're still in the minority um, in terms of the number of people that have long COVID versus the number of people that have been infected that don't have long COVID. But from the person that we spoke to this week, the suggestion is that that might change and it could actually change quite rapidly if we are infected at the rate in which people have been affected with Omicron. He talks about reinfections causing more and more damage to very integral cells in our body. And that's frightening chiefly because the way the governments around the world want to deal with COVID now is to just say we have to live with it. Yeah. But having to live with it may actually just shorten the entire population's lifespan. Yeah, everyone. Uh, that was the thing, wasn't it, from what he was saying, is that if you get infected, we're the ones showing the signs at the moment about that kind of degradation at a cellular level could be happening to every single person that is infected with COVID. Each time. Every time. Yeah. There is more and more research, even if you're asymptomatic, that your body on a cellular level has been damaged. Yeah. Dr. Anthony Leonardi, he did his PhD specifically looking at T-cells and he is a master in public health student at John Hopkins University. I really wanted to do this interview with Dr. Anthony Leonardi because I find this whole thing so underreported and such a big story that in five years from now, we're going to look back and talk about people like Dr. Leonardi as being the people that sounded the alarm first. This interview is a little bit dense with technical terms. So we have provided a glossary that you can find on our website, tlcsessions.net. So we've obviously been following a lot of your work and your paper that you put out. Um, and we're obviously focused on long COVID. But can we just start right at the beginning and could you maybe explain to us what are the different immune cells there's t cells and b cells yeah so all depending on what you really need done in your body as far as things like viruses or bacteria go it for things like the coronavirus um you really want to one prevent viruses from getting into cells and two uh prevent cells that are infected from just exuding virus. So there are different ways to do that. So one of the ways to do that is uh, create a bunch of antibodies. And so B cells will do that. They'll create antibodies. And then you also want to uh, kill cells that are infected. So you'd use T cells for that. There are other cells too that will clean up hotbeds of infection. Uh, namely, you know, there's one that's understated. So SARS-CoV-2 infection, it causes um, infected cells to downregulate how T cells recognize the infection. So uh, what, what some cells will do, called uh, they're called natural killer cells. They'll go around and, and try to detect 
if there is uh, MHC downregulation, and if there is, they may go and kill that cell. So there's there are a lot of different arms of the immune system, and of course, um, you know they work together in different ways. Uh, but but there's also things like barriers, like it's not canonically an immune tissue. Your skin is sort of, in fact, an, a, a tissue uh, that's responsible for keeping you healthy. So it, it forms a barrier. It, it acts as the first defense, really, against uh, pathogens and other things. So uh, I, I'd like to emphasize, instead of using something like your T-cells uh, to, to kill viruses once once they're in you, you should use things like barriers, like in the spirit of your skin, or, or something else like that, uh, or a mask, you know, to prevent infection. So, so you're suggesting we prevent the infection coming in rather than yeah. having to rely on. I believe that you've been quite vocal about that with in terms of the children being back in person in school, particularly unvaccinated, and and your main focus has been on emphasising mitigation rather than letting it rip through. And and I think in the states it's similar to here that. The governments have decided we've, we're just all going to get it. Yeah. Yeah. So the problem I see with that. So the only reason I'm very, very against that is because in my PhD training, all I did was T-cells, basically. And so I, I became really acquainted with their phenotypes. So the first thing I saw of the T-cell phenotypes following this infection, um, and I've seen them, I've seen T-cell phenotypes after all sorts of infections and after cancers, uh, but after this infection, they were very they were very harmed. I could tell the T cells were very harmed, and so the thought that we're going to just allow this to keep passaging through us, you know, in order to gain immunity, to me, it's it's uh, an oxymoron. So you have this thing that's burning out your T cells, and you're you're acquiring it in order to get immunity. I just don't like it. And it's not a good idea. And also there, there are all the harms that come with uh, the infection itself. So, And that that um, dysregulation or the damage caused to the T cells is you've seen that it's not only in the acute phase that remains after the, yeah. the body sort of recovers from the acute phase. Yeah, there, there are two papers on that, uh, that that are great at showing this. So one just recently came out, um, and it was from a group in Australia that shows there are persistent changes in long COVID. And then another one, um, I think it was from a group in Ireland, showed that uh, there were changes that really didn't revert after a long amount of time after some after people were infected. Um, and, and that's a Frontiers paper. And is that in everyone or is that just in the people that have developed long COVID? So, okay, so for the for the persistent um, long COVID phenotype, that was exclusive to long COVID. Uh, but for for other people, the, the immune aging, I saw elements of it in every single individual that was tested. Wow. Here's the thing, though, with that. So are asymptomatic people not going and getting, you know, all this medical testing? Well, so there could be like a selection bias, but the thing is, it looks like um, there is a there is a strong degree of T cell aging with this infection. But long COVID is something additional. It's it's even more aging and more stimulation. So let's let's for for the people who don't who are not scientifically grounded, <laughs> SARS COVID is attacking our T cells. 
and they're not recovering? And do we then assume that each subsequent infection is causing more and more damage? Because I have a group of people hanging on to my every word, I have to say, I know what you're saying, it attacks the T-cells. It doesn't attack the T-cells per se, directly, okay? But the, the second order effects manifest as T-cell harm, okay? So I just have to correct that. So it does manifest T-cell harm. And then your, your, the rest of your question, can you repeat that? Because everybody's getting reinfections now, right? Even mm -hmm. if you've been vaccinated. Yeah. Emily mm -hmm. and I have had um, COVID twice. And we both mm -hmm. have long COVID. Every infection seems to make things worse. Yeah. So even people who, my question really is, is that even people who haven't developed long COVID yet, if they were to keep getting COVID, will they eventually develop something like long COVID? Yeah, that's my, that's my hypothesis, actually. And I've been stating that. So I do believe because long COVID and, and because of what I see, it appears to be T-cell aging. And it's appeared this way since we had the first papers come out. Okay, to me, it, it, it appears like massive T-cell aging. And I've said this many times. So if you keep pushing along this pathway of T-cell aging, what there, what there is, uh, it's called sloughing. Okay, it's S-L-O-U-G-H-I-N-G. So when people think of sloughing or aging, okay, so your skin is another good representation of this. So the skin basically, it, it grows out from like this, this, the basal layer of cells. And then you get, your, uh, you get your other layers of the skin, like the stratum corneum and such. You know, they all divide and then the skin sheds, okay? So T cells are a similar type, okay? They also have like stem cells and... Uh, they when they divide, they age. And actually, what it looks like to me is uh, SARS-CoV-2 infection uh, causes the T stem cells to age. And what they're seeing in long COVID is an aging of the, the naive subset and the stem cell-like subsets of T cells. Have you seen that previously, that in other infections, that kind of aging, that sloughing? So some people mention a few a few infections like um, CMV and um, and even I mean this is scary but HIV infection. Mm. There are more more and more comparisons seemingly being being drawn. Yeah, so it is it is a bit worrying. And is there any way that you can stop or reverse that once you have that process started? What you can get is something called homeostatic proliferation. So the T cells can divide and they can replenish their numbers. Um, they don't necessarily go back in time, but they will refill certain uh, phenotypic niches. Uh, they, they'll look, you know, they'll divide in numbers and they'll be able to compensate. So you'll see what's called homeostatic proliferation and reconstitution of some degree of the subsets. Um, however, the, the T cells can't necessarily go back in time. Um, but there is something to that. There's a little organ called the thymus that we that we all have until it actually does something called involute. So the, the thymus, um, it helps us generate T cells as long as we have it. You know, some people will have it into adulthood. The thymus helps educate T cells and helps like manifest them. So once you once you don't have a thymus, once it involutes, um, it actually like turns into fatty tissue you stop producing as many T cells. And that happens with puberty and age. You know, it's starkly reduced with age. Can I just ask for the people who are, the kids who are developing long COVID, 
Do you think there's more hope for them because they still have their thymus? Yeah, I think that's good in terms of uh, repl- replenishing uh, T cell populations. Uh, yeah, and and also yeah, they they do have more more of a promising you know long term outcome. Ability to compensate, but I mean, when you also consider that it, that they're getting long COVID as a child, you know that those are a lot of functional years that they lose out on. So it goes both ways. So let me just get right to it, okay? So uh, in the recent paper that was out on long COVID, there was apparent persistent inflammation and, um, you know, kind of the, the T cells were effectory. There, there, were, there was a lot of effector activity and uh, the naive T cells were kind of activated and, and probably went to the, the um, lymphoid tissue like the uh, lymph nodes. So there's probably, there could be some element of persistent virus there, or at least um, for some reason, the T cells are persistently activated. If you were to address that persistent activation, I think the process would halt. And um, it all depends on the cause. If it's a persistent virus, you could take a medication or you could, you know, some people recommend getting vaccinated, like uh, Dr. Akiko Iwasaki. He recommends getting vaccinated even if you've had COVID because it could be addressing some reservoir that's there. So if you if you have a reservoir, if that exists and it exists in long COVID, um, you could either get vaccinated to help address it or you could um, take something like an antiviral. And what we're, what we're talking there is we're talking about some residue of the spike protein being left in our, in our systems. Is that what you're describing? It could be residue. It could be even some active virus, although they haven't found any. Um, so it could be residue. It also could be what's called an epigenetic change that occurs in, in some cell, cell type. Could be the immune system, could be other cells that were exposed to a lot of inflammation. And an epigenetic change could result in you know, some persistent inflammation. There, there are a lot of hypotheses about it. And... Um, I'm interested in in the activation of the old retroviruses that are in our DNA. Yeah. Yeah. I'm wondering if that's going to kind of be like a feedback loop where you have more inflammation and it activates more endogenous retroviruses. I don't know. I think they at least see that feedback loop in um, autoimmune diseases and long COVID might end up, I mean, there's obviously a great big autoimmune issue in long COVID. It might end up being uh, chiefly an autoimmune disease or it might be because there's residue of the virus, or it might be, you know, there's persistent virus, or it could be everything, it could be all of the above, or or just a few of those things, you know, or something I haven't even thought of. So this is this is the the I mean, just from the anecdotal observations that Emily and I've had, that every time we get sick, even just from a cold from one of the kids or or actually having had the vaccine, we get sicker because something seems to flare. Really? Something activates. And we get long COVID sicker, not necessarily that virus sicker. I see. Here's the thing about um, COVID. So it kicks off autoimmunity um, and a lot of it. And it kicks it off to an extent that's like really not been seen before. So um, there is there is a hyperactivated CD4 T cell in long COVID that's never been seen before. And what that does, what it used to do, that T cell type used to be responsible for stopping autoimmunity. 
But when someone has COVID, and particularly a severe bout of COVID, the T cells change. They they downregulate um, uh, this transcription factor, this protein that's responsible for them uh, quelling autoimmunity. They they turn that down, and then they start causing autoimmunity. So the problem is when you create those types of cells and initiate those types of programs, they don't necessarily go back in time, especially when it's in terms of T cell fates. I know there there are some pretty sensational findings. I mean, Rafi Ahmed, who's an excellent immunologist, um, has shown that some T cells can go back in time a little bit. But once you get autoimmune T cells that are that are manifesting, you know, from a bout of COVID, they're going to be there. And if you if you have some activation or if they get activated, they might flare up and you might get. So COVID was the disease itself, right? But then you have all this autoimmunity that's been programmed basically from COVID. So then you have long COVID. Um, the long COVID might might flare up when you get any inflammation going on, just like as a passenger. See, I can see why you're not going back into the hospital. <laughs> the idea is not to get COVID at all, right? Yeah, so um, I, I likely will go back next year. But uh, we will see. Yeah, I'm kind of worried about it. But have you had it? I don't think so. I don't know. It doesn't matter for me because um, even if I had it once, I don't want to have it again. And you shouldn't either. Nobody should want to have it. I mean, it's not good for you. What is it about SARS-CoV that has done this to RT cells? Is it this, this specific spike protein? There are a lot of theories. So people really, people really lay into me for speculating. Go ahead. This is the place to speculate. <laughs> this is a new disease. We have to speculate. Yeah. We have to have this conversation. No, no, I'm just giving the I'm giving the apology to everyone before I do so wildly. I so I just looked at the T cells. Honestly, I looked at the T cells when they came out. Uh, first January, then you know when when the, when the infection was widely known and published in the Lancet, and we can thank the editor for that. That was great of him to actually publish that. And think the scientists in Wuhan as well. So I looked at the T cells and what was happening. And I said, boom, there's something really strange going on. There's something, it's a severe disease. And, you know, as more information came out, you know, I could see that there was a lot of T cell death and T cell aging. And and I, just from doing it so many times, you know, just from seeing hundreds of bags of human T cells, I was able to identify this kind of quickly, you know, the signatures of illness based on their proteins and phenotypes. Um, and what was happening. And so I, I didn't, I really didn't know what was behind it. And uh, there's a group in Pittsburgh and in LA, and they claim that there may be a super antigenic region of SARS-CoV-2 spike protein that broadly stimulates um, many T cells. So here's the thing about that. When they looked at it closely, they, they said, okay, well, it's not a canonical super antigen. Um, but the thing is when it's in vivo, when they so superantigens also um, they they'll only typically stimulate CD4 T cells. But the thing is, when it's in a mouse or in an animal, they'll see CD8 T cells also stimulated by superantigens. There's sort there's sort of what's called a bystander activation. So in SARS-CoV-2 infection, there's massive bystander activation of T cells, and it comes with um, a lot of T cell death and aging. And also another group recently found that complement protein was also stimulating T cells broadly um, and non-specifically, as do superantigens. 
So I think the candidates for what makes SARS-CoV-2 really unique. Uh, and here's the other thing about these about these um, proteins that broadly stimulate. So on its own, it might be you know it might be a small dose and it might not be a big thing. But when you when when the virus has the ability to evade immune responses, so SARS-CoV-2 is able to hide from the immune system by downregulating how T cells see it. You can load much more super antigen or whatever protein is broadly stimulated. You can load it more uh, in an infection in the cells. You can load more biomass is what I say. So in combination, I think what's happening is that the downregulation of MHC1 is allowing a lot of this, what may not be a canonical super antigen, but what is able to broadly stimulate and maybe cause a lot of bystander stimulation that whatever that is, whatever those proteins are, they're able to you know, load up and then finally stimulate the immune system. But that's all theory in between the observation. The simple observation is the T cells are harmed, something is doing it, something is pushing them to be harmed and to age prematurely. I know there are a lot of T cell evangelicals that are saying, oh, the T cells are gonna handle everything, they're gonna save us. But really, they need to they need to look and look at the T cell phenotypes and how they're aging, and and then uh, equate that into catching this every you know twice a year or once a year, whatever it is, whatever it may be. You know, there was that publication again in the Lancet of sixteen month a sixteen month median. I'd say now that that's uh, an underestimate because Omicron and, and and the other variants are evolving that much more quickly. Yeah. And we're saying so, it's reinfection so much closer together. I think they need to recalculate um, what sort of mitigations they're they're going to they're going to employ. I, I always I try to say you know use the airborne mitigations and um, you know filter the air. But also I think that it'd be good to to maybe do something like mass produce Paxlovid or mass produce an antiviral for the public, and maybe even I mean. This is this might be extreme, you know, to you guys, but I think there should be a Manhattan Project or something on SARS-CoV-2, because I, I mean, people are saying, okay, you know, it's going to be benign and endemic, but it's so unpredictable, and if we don't get better control of it, uh, it could end up biting us in the backsides. Potentially, with this theory, we're looking at mass disability in five years. We already, yeah, we already have a big element of disability now, right? In five years yeah. from now. Yeah, that, and that's huge. Certainly. I think it was one in 50 people in the UK had long COVID. Is that right? We're currently standing at 1.3 million, and that's without Omicron because Omicron's just happened. So they they consider anything with any long-lasting symptoms 12 weeks and above is long COVID. I see. If I understand what you're saying... Are we saying that T cells then are behind long COVID? Um, I'm only invoking the T cells in terms of one, the autoimmunity, yeah, uh, and two, um, the apparent harm. So that's being done with them. So actually, that paper also had a naive B cell depletion, and B cells in COVID are also generating a lot of autoimmunity. So really, it's the so really. Part of the, well, most of the publications that at least I'm exposed to and I read, it's the adaptive immune system 
the one that's responsible for taking care of things like viruses and cancers. It's the adaptive immune system is getting a big hit from COVID. Um, and it's, and, you know, it's hitting back too. It's, it's causing autoimmunity. So I'd say the adaptive immune system. So I know this is slightly controversial, but the, the vaccines then, do they stimulate, do they create, recreate some of this T-cell aging and death? No, I don't think so. Because um, one, that's not being seen. The phenotypes of the T-cells don't look, you know, they don't look awful like an infection does. And two, the vaccine is a controlled dose, whereas the infection is a runaway process that if your body doesn't get a handle of, you know, it, your body has to burn through a lot of immunity in order to get a handle of, uh, of viruses. I know that when they studied it in mice, uh, they saw that lesser doses of virus give less illness. But here's the thing. Any dose of virus is just not good for you. It's, it's not good to be exposed because it can beget a runaway process of infection. So certainly not the vaccines. They're not causing T-cell death and autoimmunity. See, the vaccine doesn't have these proteins that cloak the harmful components of the virus that cause a lot of buildup and then cause your body to react to both the virus and, and your own cells. So the vaccine does not have that. The virus is able to hide so well from the immune system. I don't know if it's a compensation or what, but the immune system goes haywire and also causes some autoimmunity. So no, it's not the, I know, I know you're saying, oh, well, is it the vaccine? This is controversial, you know, but no, the vaccine will stimulate your immune system. If you have an immune problem already and your immune system flares up, you might have a re-flaring of that problem, but I don't think the vaccine is causing that. Okay, that's good. When you just suggested um, that one of your theories might be to develop an antiviral for the public, is that a... Yeah, that's not a theory. That's a suggestion. So a suggestion. But would that be would that be something that you're suggesting as a prophylaxis, like or a treatment for when you have the uh, the acute disease? So, in cases where there are massive waves like this, I would hope that we would have a lot of antiviral or something on hand for people that come down with it. But in the best case scenario. Well, I mean, in the dream scenario, we would not have any waves of infection, right? But in the best case scenario, we would have an antiviral or something, some treatment that would even prevent infection or prevent the harm that comes with it. So right now we're using our vaccines and everything, but this darn virus keeps evolving, you know, to, to kind of escape many things like the antibodies. I know citrovimab is largely, its efficacy uh, in binding may be largely reduced by a change that's just come out on Omicron, I think on BA2. So yeah, I mean, my hope is that, well, in the dream scenario, we have no waves. Second best is we have something that makes it so that we don't get harmed if we do have a wave. And then third best is pill in a pocket situation, which means you get infected, you know, you have pills or something at the ready to take to make sure you don't get into the severe disease category. So those aren't theories, those are just suggestions. And the antivirals, how do they work? Do they operate on protecting, do they protect the T-cells? Yeah, so the antivirals will, will keep you from having a full fat dose of infection. People that take Paxlovid, you know, in the early stages of infection, they feel better very quickly. Um, and and what, that, what that does is it basically, so the virus uses, uh, 
your cells, it uses machinery to replicate. The, the antivirals kind of put, put a lock on those proteins and stop the proteins from synthesizing the viral proteins, okay? Okay. The viral RNA. Is that being used currently in the, in the US, in people with mild infection? Because it's not here. Yeah, it's not available enough. Um, I know that the UK has uh, molnupiravir, and I know that, I don't know if they're using Paxlovid right now. I think they are, but I know that they have orders for Paxlovid. But I think it's only in severe cases. It's not like if you just get... It's only for people who are vulnerable, like... Yeah, because we don't have enough of it, right? Yeah. So once we have enough, once we ramp up production, I would hope that, you know, we would have enough for, for more people. But yeah, obviously it's used in sort of like a triage situation where people that are more likely to die or something or have very, very bad outcomes will be given these drugs. I, I'm only talking about my recommendations in the dream scenario. No, no, we completely understand. Do we think that this antiviral could be given to long COVID sufferers as a way of clearing any viral residue. So yeah, that assumes that there is vir the virus still there remaining, which could be the case. And that's a great research question. And I imagine people are going to try that. I think they're going to study that. What's your feeling? You feel that it's just the, the T cells have been damaged and that's that. I know that uh, Dr. Akiko Iwasaki, again, I know that she had a recent publication, I think it's still in preprint, where there was uh, some persistent viral RNA in, I think it was monocytes and macrophages. So I think there could be a reservoir somewhere in the body where there's some virus and it's replicating very slowly and the immune system is getting like um, continual small doses of uh, the viral proteins and they're broadly activating the immune system. I think that maybe that's my hypothesis and that's some other people's hypothesis. So that's just a feeling. We'll see what we'll see what happens. If that's the case, then maybe something like an antiviral would help. So uh, there would be hopefully treatments for that with antivirals or something. I know there's another I mean, there's another group. This is getting really into science. We love it. <laughs> there's a scientist in Pennsylvania. Uh, it, I think it's. Yeah, I can't remember the institution, but so he uses um, CRISPR-Cas to cut out uh, conserved viral proteins in infected animals and people. And he has a company now that's, um, you know, looking into that for people. And I know that there was a group in Australia that was fashioning CRISPR-Cas to cut out SARS-CoV-2 from cells, you know, if it's still, if it's persistent or if it's, in, you know, infecting so there are groups taking different strategies. That's a really creative strategy using um, some Nobel Prize winning technology. Um, but antivirals look very promising as well. Do we think that if we let this virus go unchecked, which is what the British government has decided to do, and a lot of governments I think will follow because it's just impossible in their mind to keep people at home and the latest government guidelines from our prime minister is that even if you're infected, you can still, you don't have to isolate. You can just go amongst everybody, just spread it everywhere. Do you think we are looking at a potential scenario where it will completely evade our immune system? I don't think so. I think that our adaptive immune system will continue to recognize it, but that's a double-edged sword. Okay. For, for one thing, it's going to be able to train itself with evolution 
against our adaptive immune systems and against our innate immune systems, um, it's, it's going to keep being able to test itself against that. And in the, the iteration of virus that is good at escaping around those defenses will be more fit, will be able to better reproduce by that property of evasiveness. Sure. But um, part of the double-edged sword of, of this virus and our immunity is when we recognize the virus, we're also reacting to it. And our reactions to it are so far um, in severe cases, they harm us as well. There was a paper that came out about when some people, they clear the virus, but their immune response kills them. Okay, so with addressing the virus in our bodies, we kind of take a hit on our own tissue as well. What may happen, you know, there's a, there are a lot of theories about the trajectory. And the thing is, there's so much evolution and replication going on of this virus in people. It's going to go down so many different evolutionary pathways, you know, and just like see what's more fit. I think there are scenarios where some variants are more immune evasive. Some may be better at establishing a chronic infection. Some may be less persistent and just like, you know, briefly die out. But the problem is when you have a virus that's very self-limiting and uh, it's able to be extinguished by the immune system quickly, that's less likely by that property to be passed on to someone else. The ones that you're going to be more likely to pass on uh, and that will survive into generations are going to be the ones that are able to establish infection, maybe have a good long uh asymptomatic shedding period and and then further propagate. The problem with SARS-CoV-2 in that in that regard of the shedding period is the immunopathology phase and much of the damage from infection is very late. It's very lagged. Um, and, and it's namely like a type 4 hypersensitivity reaction. So in, in immunology, there are different reactions that you can have to different um, noxious stimuli that that the immune system may encounter. So type four hypersensitivity is like the most delayed. It manifests like much later. And that's usually by the adaptive immune system. Um, the adaptive immune system may react uh, strongly to some stimuli. So SARS-CoV-2, the pathology and the immunopathology is somewhat late. Someone other than me also made the analogy to a type four hypersensitivity reaction which is a delayed reaction, you know, from like uh, things like T-cells to, uh, to haptins. And so with that, SARS-CoV-2, since it has that long virally shedding incubation period, it really has an open door to, to whichever way, you know, it could, it could evolve. So there could, be, there could be a number of variants that emerge. And, and the thing about it also um, is we are chiefly selecting for which SARS-CoV-2 emerges by, by the spike protein, namely, from what it appears. The shape of the spike protein and the different mutations on the spike protein are going to give it an advantage to, to propagating based on our immune memory, our immune sera, our antibodies that are circulating in our blood are kind of going to select for which SARS-CoV-2 uh, variant emerges and propagates. So it's very, very complicated what we're going to see happen. And it could really go either way. But um, 
Remember, something that has less of a fitness uh, advantage will be more self-limiting and extinguish itself more. But things that might be more tenacious and confer like kind of poor immunity, like Omicron. Omicron is conferring a poor immunity after infection, like there aren't very high antibody uh, titers in comparison to the other variants. Uh, those are going to have an, uh, an advantage. But the problem is it can always revert in phenotype. So I think Omicron, yeah, I, I did I did make some claims of what I what I thought would occur. And I and I said that I would I anticipated it being more reentrant um, and more of a chronic infection. And that is what's happening now, but it can still go either way and it can go anyway. Do you think that we're going to see a big uptick in long COVID from from Omicron then? That's a good question. The problem with these these epidemiological projections that I make, the problem is there are people that that calculate these things based on what they want to find a lot of the time. Of course. And there's a lot of controversy with a few doctors, let's say at UCSF and Stanford. Everybody's arguing there's a line in the sand and people are on one side or the other. And unfortunately, there are epidemiological papers on one side or the other as well. But my opinion, okay, based on not getting into assessment of long COVID, if we had something ripped through populations, I would say that the, that the virus that would confer the most long COVID would be Delta, and then maybe Omicron behind it. This is just from what how bad of an infection it looked like. I heard um, I heard gamma was particularly fierce as an infection, but Omicron would it make more long COVID? I don't know. I don't know. I, I would have to look at a number of things, and if it's based on my idea that uh, maybe some persistent virus is causing long COVID, I'd like to see the uh, kinetics of um, viral positivity and RNA positivity following infection of Omicron versus Delta versus Alpha, etc. And if there is like a fat lagging a tail of persistent RNA in uh, Omicron infection, then I would say there, that I'd project there would be more, more long COVID with Omicron. So is it surprising that the majority of long COVID sufferers had an extremely mild experience of COVID? Does that surprise you? Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's more of a paradox, isn't it? Yeah. But it does not, it doesn't really surprise me. And here's why. So it is in the people with very severe illness that get the uh, most durable immune responses to COVID or SARS-CoV-2. So if you have a very light response, if you have a very light illness and light response to the infection, your immunity, uh, the antibodies, you're, you're not going to have high antibody titers. Uh, you're not going to have a big, you know, exuberant, big immune response against the virus. So there could be, there could be some reservoir that remember it's downregulating MHC one. It's hiding out somewhere. There could be a persistent, uh, persistent reservoir that was able to sneak out. You know because there wasn't enough inflammation and systemic inflammation. Almost like because the the viral load wasn't that big, your body didn't kick back sort of hard enough against it. Is that what you mean? Yeah. So some people in theory, this is all just speculation, but in theory, a very low response to the infection exactly. You wouldn't kick back and there could be some uh, reservoir there. But this this is just 
theory and speculation. But I would like to point out that uh, so, so many of the people, the scientists, the medical professionals working on this, it is purely speculation. And, um, yeah. and a lot of the time, people are not admitting that. You have alluded quite a lot to uh, coming under fire, being criticised and discredited by people, other people within the scientific community, I think. Is that something you'd agree with? Fairly within the scientific community, just just people in general. Is it? <laughs> okay, because I was really interested to, to just, just ask about that and find out, are the scientific community coming together to try and quash this? Or is it a kind of glory seeker situation where people are, are fighting it out to... Obviously, everyone wants their theory to be correct, but... No, no, no. I think there was a, there was a leading time that I had because I was able, one, I was able to see the T cells were really harmed and, you know, they were aged and everything. And then I, I saw the preprints with um, depletion of the naive subset. And so before the public and before the standard medical practitioners and everybody really saw this, I was, I was a little bit of um, already accepting this knowledge. But now that these papers have come out and they're, you know, accepted and they're in high impact journals, there is now a, a united voice among scientists of what this is, of what it's doing and the harm that it's doing and, and how the immune system, the T cells are getting harmed. There's kind of a, a big voice around that now so that it's almost a consensus now. There was a lot of you know, controversy about T cells really controlling everything in SARS-CoV-2 and you know, doing a lot of things. But now that we see the damage, I think more people are on the page, on the same page, uh, that I've been. And the only advantage I have was because, you know, I looked at so much T-cell stuff. And actually, um, in my PhD, I worked on T-cell differentiation, and I found how T-cells differentiate via a fast and AKT. So that was how they make memory. So I, I had a small advantage in that. But now that these papers are out, there's more of a united voice, you know, uh, among the scientists. It's only a lot of vested interests are the ones that want to say, okay, T-cells and and the like are going to get us out of this. But but now the, the serious scientists know that that's not the case. And certainly Omicron has, has really shown them, not the light, I'd say, but has shown them the dark that they face. So when our blood is tested for antibodies, it's not testing for T-cells, right? Because T-cells, yeah. it's testing for just normal antibodies. Yeah. Because my son, for example, had COVID a year ago and then had a blood test and they said, he doesn't have any antibodies anymore, but he's probably got T-cells, so don't worry. Oh, God. Right? So that's what I'm told. And I'm like, well, how do you know? Because they're not testing for T-cells. So here's the thing about that. So, yeah, one, the antibody, the antibody titers fade. Um, and when that happens with SARS-CoV-2, we know that you can get reinfected because it's the antibodies that, that protect, that are the correlate of protection, the published correlate. T-cells... Uh, will not prevent infection or reinfection. And also those T cell responses also wane. You will have memory T cells, um, but they won't necessarily be able to get a handle on infection, especially when the, uh, the virus is able to establish itself very well. So SARS-CoV-2 is really able to establish itself uh, quickly and kind of outpace T cells, especially with its uh, ability to evade adaptive immunity by downregulating those those proteins that are so important to T cells. 
So, um, so yeah, that reassurance that, oh, your son may have T cells. Well, that's all that really is saying is there's some controversy that the T cells, you know, may be preventing severe disease. It could be the B cell memory. Why do they say the T cells? You know, they haven't proven it. They just want uh, yeah, to exactly. throw something at you. Yeah, exactly. It's a, uh, it's kind of false assurance like about T cells because we don't know. If you looked at our blood now, would you see something in our, would you be able to see something in our T cells? What we would be able to look at is um, we'd be able to take your T cells and see which ones recognize specific peptides, short protein sequences of SARS-CoV-2. So we could do that. What, what we would do is we'd take your blood We'd um, sort it out, get get a little layer of T cells that floats on the top, and then and then take those T cells and put them in a machine. Uh, no, bind them, bind them to antibodies, uh, and those antibodies have little have little pixels on them almost. And when you shine a light, those pixels light up. So then you take those T cells that are bound to antibodies with those little light pixels. You put them through a machine. The machine fires a laser on them. It it lights up nice and bright when there's an antibody bound or or um, uh, like a, a a small sequence of um, of protein that's that's specific to SARS-CoV-2. You can tell which T cells are there that do that. So so we can see if you have a population of T cells in your blood that recognize SARS-CoV-2. And if you're telling me you have long COVID, um, the interesting thing is when they looked at people's blood who had long COVID, they had fewer, um, in a few analyses, they had fewer spiked SARS-CoV-2 T-cells circulating in their blood. And what I think that represents to me is that those T-cells are occupied somewhere. They're probably out, you know, in lymph nodes or somewhere, you know, maybe fighting infection or, or seeing their antigen or their age, or some of them may have died or not have been there to begin with. Oh my God. You would have um, T cells specific to uh, SARS-CoV-2's proteins, yes. So people with long COVID, just to dumb it down for, for people like me, have less T cells because... No, 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 no. So to dumb it down, people with long COVID, they probably, they have more... T cells reactive to SARS-CoV-2 than an infected person. But in a few analyses of long COVID, one that is not published yet, um, saw that there were low or missing spike-specific CD8 T cells, I think it was, um, in people who had long COVID. So it's not necessarily they have less overall. It's, It's what it's specific to. In my opinion, the most important thing, really, one of the most important things are the antibodies against spike. So uh, the T cells, you know, maybe they protect against severe disease. It's yet to be proven or shown. You know, it could be other immunological memory. So we need lots of antibodies, basically. But interestingly, I have two different types of antibodies in my blood, but still got reinfected. So didn't 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 fight against Omicron at all. Exactly. There was a paper out and it's getting a lot of acclaim that they're seeing antibodies and they're lasting for a year. Well, guess what? That virus that those antibodies are against didn't last a year. It's not around anymore. So what are you showing me? You know, if it doesn't, the proof is in the pudding. Okay. I am, I'm so tired of seeing results in a dish or results, you know, just based on a readout and it has no clinical correlation. It has no efficacy. 
you know, you should tell them they can take those results and they'll, they'll get a dime or a penny for them. It's not, it, it doesn't prove anything. Those aren't working. Okay. That, that virus is no longer there. You know, show me the data. Yeah. Need to see it in real human beings. Yeah. If, if you're having, if people, and it's very standard with antibody titers against the Washington version of SARS-CoV-2, you know, if they're getting infected with Omicron or beta or what have you, those those results of persistent um, antibodies, they really mean nothing because we're facing an ever-evolving pathogen, okay? This thing is going to keep evolving and escape, um, and it's going to emerge. It's going to sort of like emerge and spread based on our, our sera, based on our antibodies that are in our blood. So iterations of the virus that, that the antibodies that we have can address it, those are less likely to propagate by that nature. So what's going, what has to occur is there has to be like, uh, like a chronic infection or a lot of infection occurring, and that has to cause a lot of uh, mutations to accrue. And those mutations are going to be uh, tested against other people in the environment with, um, with sera. And, and the, the virus that is able to escape that sera will be the one that can establish and propagate. So it's almost like some people in some populations, they're able to foster replication of the virus and continually kind of challenge the serological landscape that the rest of the population has and the rest of the world has. So that's why you see, and that's how you see these variants, you know, encircle the earth and then they infect another person and then they can maybe uh, accrue more mutations. And actually now I think they're seeing that with animals too. So there's some speculation that the rats in New York City um, have have a uh, lineage of SARS-CoV-2 that's, that's kind of evolving on its own. So as an immunologist, this disease, what if it was a level 1 to 10, how would you rate this emergency as a global emergency? Because people are now just like living with it. We're, we're the, you know, it's just a cold. We keep hearing that a lot. It's just, you know, it's like a flu. I don't believe that. I, I think we're I think we're blind to what's going to happen in twelve months from now. So the virus has the ability to um, to really to really hit our healthcare systems and to you know really harm global trade and to harm the worker population. And we don't know the long term effects. Like we don't know what's going to manifest in a decade. I'd say that the amount of risk that we are that we are in is massive on a level of one to 10, you know, on the global scale of disaster, it all depends. So depending on how it manifests and how it evolves and what we're capable of creating to to manage and mitigate it, um, it could range from, I'd say, from a two to three to all the way up to an eight or a nine, all depending on how it pans out and what happens. So as of now, it's it's pretty awful. I'd say it's like a, I'd say it's like a five or a six. But depending on what we develop, it could go down or could go up. How how the virus evolves. Yeah, but the for me the problem is that it's a global pandemic and we're we're not a very equitable society, are we? Yeah. So that's my consideration for the for the globe. You know, maybe like a five. I'm thinking of something like. If Ebola was just as transmissible and had such, had just a latent period, you know, as SARS-CoV-2, well, obviously that would be a 10 or a 9, right? That'd be so much worse. 
Yeah, because it kills you so quickly. This is yeah. this is like this horrible slow. This is a slow burn. burn. Yeah. Yeah. Would we be handling it different if we knew that you know in five years everyone who had contracted COVID will be getting cancer? Yes, we would. Or that all of those people will be unable to work and reliant on state benefits and reliant on the healthcare system. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, we probably would be acting different. And when a long, yeah, long COVID is just going to be awful. If it's already one in 50 in the population, I can't imagine, you know, I, I don't know. But if you now look at the, we're never going to have stats for it, but if you now look at the volume of the population that has just had Omicron, that figure is going to change massively because previously it was, it's one in seven of the, of the people who have had COVID go on to develop long COVID. So given how many people have just had or are having Omicron, figures are going to be horrendous. Yeah. 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 And do you think actually the only way of preventing long COVID is to prevent infection? Or do you think that there's something that we... I know that that's a surefire way of preventing long COVID, but I don't know if it's the only way. It might be that if you get um, if you get something... An antiviral or something. Yeah, very early, you might you might prevent long COVID. Uh, fairly sobering, don't you think? If uh, we are looking at mass disability, it's pretty sobering. I mean, I've done so much research since talking to Anthony and found all these papers talking about cell death, cell aging, and how COVID is evading our immune system and damaging our immune system that I'm just, <laughs> I don't want to set up outside, put outside the house. Join us next week as we hear others' experiences of long COVID. Share your stories and questions at tlcsessions.net. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram for the latest updates. And if you found this interesting, please do subscribe. <laughs>